This morning's reading comes from Acts 20, uh, verses 1 through 12. This is from the New Living Translation. When the uproar was over, Paul sent for the believers and encouraged them. Then he said goodbye and left for Macedonia. While there, he encouraged the believers in all the towns he passed through. Then he traveled down to Greece, where he stayed for three months. He was preparing to sail back to Syria when he discovered a plot by some Jews against his life, so he decided to return through Macedonia. Several men were traveling with him. They were uh, Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia, They went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. After the Passover ended, we boarded a ship at Philippi in Macedonia, and five days later joined them in Troas, where we stayed a week. On the first day of the week, we gathered with the local believers to share in the Lord's Supper. Paul was preaching to them, and since he was leaving the next day, he kept talking until midnight. The upstairs room where we met was lighted with many flickering lamps. As Paul spoke, on and on, a young man named Eu. Tychus, sitting on the windowsill, became very drowsy. Finally, he fell sound asleep and dropped three stories to his death below. I know, that shocked me too. But wait, it gets better. (laughs) Paul went down, bent over him, and took him into his arms. Don't worry, he said. He's alive. Then they all went back upstairs, shared in the Lord's Supper, and ate together. Paul continued talking to them until dawn, and then he left. Meanwhile, the young man was taken home, alive and well, and everything, everyone was greatly relieved. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things that, uh, that was interesting to me that I kind of found myself wondering is, is, like, why would Luke have decided to include this story in the text? Uh, when I think about, you know, this, this story, it's kind of an odd one, right? I mean, you, it doesn't exactly display Paul in the most incredible way that he's putting people to sleep and talking on and on. Uh, and it's kind of a weird story to just include in the, in the text. And so there's a lot of things, I'm sure, that Luke gathered. And so I imagine that Luke had to decide, like, what stories was he going to include in, the, in these texts? So what stories was he not going to include? Which, what stories could he verify uh, firsthand? And which ones did he hear, you know, the second and third and fourth person decide, eh, we're not going to put that in there because I can't verify that that's really probably the way that that happened uh, Luke, we know, did a lot of work. He was a physician, and so he was very, very careful with his details and how he would try to find stories and how he would try to depict them and communicate them back to us. But I, I find it interesting that the fact that Luke was a physician, that he would include this story. It made me wonder for a moment if perhaps this story was interesting to Luke because his whole job was to care for people's bodies, to care for people's health. And here in this moment, uh, this man who's got this incredible power from the Spirit of God goes and raises this man from the dead, basically resuscitates him, so to speak. Now, some scholars kind of debate a little bit, like, well, maybe, he, maybe when he fell, he didn't actually fall to his death. Uh, maybe he just fell and Luke went, I mean, Paul went down, checked on him, and he's like, oh, he's good, he's all right, and everyone's like, woohoo, and it was all fine, right? Or maybe he went down and he resuscitated him. Uh, we don't really know. Uh, some scholars say, well, it says that he fell to his death. I mean, if Luke didn't want to say he fell to his death, he probably could have just left that out. He, he wants to emphasize that this guy was gone, and then Luke uh, or Paul went and resuscitated him. You're screwing me up, Meg. And, and so, uh, uh, I'm just teasing you back there. Good. And then uh, he digs into this, uh, his heels a little bit, right? And he raises this guy up. And I wonder if in this moment, I wonder in this moment, if Luke was astounded that this guy was able to just resuscitate this person. 
wonder how many people Luke had seen pass away throughout his life. I wonder how many people Luke had tried to help and to provide care to their bodies and to their overall health and did so unsuccessfully. And I wonder if Luke was like, wow, I, I want that kind of physician power. I want that kind of strength to help people and to restore them at their weakest and most uh, scary moments on the verge of death. Maybe that's why he included this. Perhaps Paul uh, and his ministry wasn't just about preaching till midnight, and that's why he he includes this story, that he wants to begin to show to us that, just like Jesus, Jesus' ministry wasn't all about standing on a sermon on a mountain preaching at people. Jesus' ministry was also about actively engaging the lives of people, about healing their wounds and making things better and restoring people from places on the margins into places of privilege and and equality and equity. Maybe he's including this story to say, yeah, Paul was a preacher, but Paul didn't just watch the guy fall out a window and go, eh, who cares how well it happens, casualty of the trade. You know, he didn't do that. No, he, he actively cared and engaged, went down three stories. It doesn't appear anybody else followed him down to check on this guy. Just Paul stops his sermon, goes down, because his ministry cares just as much about the preaching as it does about the practice. Or maybe, perhaps, it's because Luke loves imagery. If you read the Gospel of Luke, and then you also read the book of Acts, you'll find that that Luke loves to draw on imagery to make connections to certain things, telling certain stories to connect them to, perhaps, Hebrew Bible stories, or to things that Jesus did. And so, it's kind of interesting to think about, when you read this text, actually, in in verse 7, it it says something that maybe you would just skip over and not think anything of, but maybe if we pause for a moment, we'll catch it. It says, on the first day of the week... They gather local believers for the Lord's Supper. Kind of interesting that the first day of the week they gather. This is the first instance in the New Testament where we see Christians are gathering on a Sunday, not a Saturday. When Sabbath is all of a sudden changed. Christians gathered on a Sunday instead because it was the day Jesus resurrected. So it's kind of interesting to think about the fact that they, uh, instead of sunset on Friday evening and ending at dark on, on Saturday, Saturday evening, this congregation probably was beginning to observe some sort of Sabbath-type rules, but remixed into the Christian tradition. And so they would have been Saturday evening at sunset into Sunday's dawn. So why is Paul preaching so late? Why are they doing this into the evening? Why is this happening? This was church. This was practice. This was synagogue. They were gathering together. But further than that, uh, Paul is preaching to them in this moment because He's like, you know, usually I'd let you go home a little earlier after we gather for Sabbath and we have a meal and we, we hear the reading of God's word and the interpretation of that. But I got to go tomorrow. Like, this is my last day with you. And so we're just going to, I'm going to get everything and we're going to cram it like a professor at the final two uh, classes of the semester. We're going to just push it all in. And there's a few people dozing off. But what I think is even more interesting about this is the imagery that perhaps Luke is trying to connect to here. This is the first mention in Scripture, right, to Christians gathering on a Sunday. Christians gather on a Sunday instead of a Saturday because Christ resurrected. And then what happens on the very first Sunday that we see mentioned in Scripture that Christians are gathering on a Sunday? Someone gets resurrected. Paul loves this kind of imagery. He loves to draw these connections and tell these stories. And part of it is because of an oral tradition. Not everybody gets a pew Bible in front of them at church or in synagogue, right? Uh, the printing press didn't come out till pretty recent, actually, if you think about it, in the last 500 years during the Reformation. So how would people remember stories? They would connect the stories to other stories, imagery, and so they could pass those down from generation to generation. And so here, I think maybe, perhaps, Luke is drawing upon some imagery. We don't really know. Luke doesn't give us like a footnotes thing of like, now here's why I told the story. Uh, much like Jesus tells stories, perhaps even... Imageries and doesn't always explain it to us when they draw these pictures. 
But what I think is even more interesting as I dive into the text is what it says in verse 8. It says, The upstairs room where we met was lit with flickering lamps. So as Paul spoke on and on, a young man named Eutychus, sitting on the windowsill, became very drowsy, and finally he fell asleep and dropped three stories to his death below. These these few verses really help us paint a picture of kind of why he fell asleep. Think about it with me for a moment. Put ourselves in the context. It's late at night. They're likely in a stuffy room. There is no Christian churches yet, so just gathering in someone's house. There are small fires for light all around this small room. Okay? We're in the middle of summer. You can imagine if you didn't have air conditioning and you're in a small room on the third story where the sun has been beaming in and then the sun goes down and you have all these lights, uh, not like a light you turn on, right? And you're having little fires all over the room to be able to keep some light in the room. It's going to get hot. So where do you sit if it's going to get hot? By the windowsill, right? You're hot. And so this guy's got a prime spot by the windowsill. Get a little bit of a, a, a breeze in. Probably feels a little bit like it does in church this morning, 77 degrees, because some reason the air didn't turn on, and we can't seem to fix that every single week. When I change the schedule, it seems to revert. So if anyone knows how to use a thermostat, please email me this week. <laughs> but I see some of you even dazing off this morning because you're so hot, right? It, it, it gets hot in somewhere, and you sit in a window, and all of a sudden, what happens? He falls asleep. He's gone. To his own death. It kind of reminds me of of youth lock-ins and the Assemblies of God when I was a kid and we would bring in the new year with the youth pastor preaching till midnight, starting at nine. We'd have worship and preaching and drama and all these things. And that's how we brought the new year in together. And I'll tell you what, um, I have never struggled to bring in the new year except for a youth lock-in, listening to someone preach until midnight. That's what this story sort of reminded me of. And if I was singing one day, I might have fallen to my death as well. <laughs> it's kind of an, a tragic story, right? But, but, he, but he, he does come back to life. And I think sometimes we give this guy kind of a hard rap. But one of the things to also think about is that the name Eutychus, it means fortunate. Now, we don't know if he was given a name later. But his name means fortunate. He's pretty fortunate. Or if his parents gave him that name and, and he ended up living up to his name that they named him. But the word Eutychus, or the name Eutychus, Eutychus, it's not a Jewish name. It's a Greek name. So guess what? This Greek, he was not used to going to church. He was not used to going to Sabbath. He definitely wasn't used to staying up till midnight and listening to this person preach nonstop. That is not how he would have been raised. And yet he's become a Christian. He's probably with other Jews and maybe other Greeks, I imagine, in this space. Or maybe he's in a room full of Jews and he's the only Greek, and that's why they were all stay up and he didn't stay up. Or maybe they all fell asleep and it was darkly lit and Paul just couldn't see it. I don't know what it might be, but what we do know is that this is kind of a tragic story, but fortunately, pun intended, for Eutychus, right? His name is Fortunate. Thanks for your sympathy laugh. Nothing. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. I know you're laughing at home. I appreciate you being with me on that. Despite all this, Paul ran down to the street, kneeled over this broken body, and revived this young man bringing him literally back to life and into the fold of the church. But reality is, is, is Eutychus is not just some passive character in the story. However, I think that he has this sort of unique story for us to stop and to pause and to think about and remember that Eutychus is maybe the first person, but not the last, in the Christian church to fall out of the church. Yeah. But also, thank you for that, Susan. My gosh, this is a tough crowd. You'd think it was midnight. Um, and so pushes falling out of the church, yes, but for some maybe even have been pushed out of the church. 
And he's also probably not the first to have fallen asleep in church. It's interesting to think about that in 2020, uh, the Gallup poll reported that 47% of U.S. adults uh, said they belonged to a church or synagogue or mosque. That's, that's less than 50% of Americans that identify in some type of faith community. That's down 20 points from the turn of the century. And this is most, mostly attributed to change primarily due to the rise in Americans who just have like no religious affiliation. And I don't think that that just passively happens. I don't think people just passively fall out of church or just fall asleep in church. I think that it's because a lot of people are pushed out. A lot of times the church hasn't kept up with what the people need and what they're hearing or with where they're at or with culture. The church has not evolved or changed over time. The church just digs its heels in and says, this is the way it always has been, instead of realizing that as time has gone on, there is always something new to learn from those who've come before us and those who are living now and those who will come. We build our faith upon those scriptures that we read every week here, but we also build our faith upon all the books and the church fathers and mothers and leaders that have gone before us. When I... um, Back in March of 2016, having fallen out of the church myself, and some might even say maybe pushed out of the church, I really needed my faith to be resuscitated. And I know that I've shared this journey with you many times of the need for my faith to be resuscitated after having been pushed out. And I know that I've spoken and spoken in this journey, but there's one story that I haven't shared in that journey that I came to me this week really clearly. It was when I um, went to Houston, Texas. It was in 2016, and I attended the largest predominantly gay uh, church in the United States. It's called Cathedral of Hope. And I went on a Sunday morning with really my, my faith in the church just sort of drowning. I was on the margins of the church, not sure what church would ever find me or accept me. The churches I had gone to a few times, I didn't really feel like I fit, even though they might have tried to make me fit. Sometimes I felt like a refugee a little bit because they were like, you can come, you're fine, but you need to assimilate and act like us. We'll accept that you're gay, but, you know, you need to read the liturgy and say the prayers and believe the creeds just like we do. It was nice to have my sexuality accepted, but it just felt like there was a different set of expectations I then had to live up to. But in this church, it was kind of interesting. As I sat and I was becoming frustrated with the church, I, I noticed something. There was really robust music, which was really beautiful, and incredible choirs. I mean, most predominantly gay church, you imagine they would have a great choir, right? They had candles, they had robes, they had really good preaching. I was like, this is a really dynamic church, this is really neat. I had gone to Houston because I was considering attending a a seminary there, and I thought, I'm going to check out this church while I'm here. I was pretty guarded, though. I was pretty skeptical about the church. I was pretty angry. I felt like my faith was pretty dead at that point. All I had was a faith in Christ, but not a faith in the church. And as they began to go forward for communion in that service that morning, I saw these two men make their way down this long aisle in the sanctuary. And do we have a picture of this church? And as they, these two men went down, uh, they were supporting and holding and helping each other. I don't have a picture of them because I was crying in this moment. And as they supported and held each other, arm locked arm in arm with a cane in both of their hands, going down the aisle for communion, I just began to see tears just come down my face. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? Why are you acting like this? And I really checked in with myself, and I realized it was because they were a picture of what I had hoped I could have one day in the church. I sat there wondering what their story was, wondering how many churches they had been kicked out of or forced out of, how many churches they had fallen out of over the years, 
and how long it took them to find this church where they could walk down the aisle, cane in cane and arm in arm, to receive communion together without someone denying it to them. And in that moment, it really felt like the Holy Spirit just resuscitated my faith. It felt like someone let down the ladder and said, come on back up to the third floor. It was as if the Apostle Paul himself had paused in his preaching to come down three stairs to kneel down my, by my dying faith to breathe new life into it again for the first time. Just enough to carry me on to the next place in my journey. I don't know, church, how, how many people have fallen away from the church and when they do, we're, are we kneeling in the streets with them in that hard place? Are we acknowledging that, yes, religion can be hard and are we willing to change our systems and traditions and practices in order to create a more inclusive space for all? I know we've been trying to do that here over the last couple of years very intentionally, even particularly changing the way in which we understand God as being genderful so that others can feel that they see God in the God that they worship. Acknowledging that that's been hard and that's made people walk away to fall out of the church. Are we changing are we adapting, not compromising our beliefs or our strong convictions, but seeking unity over uniformity? When young people come out, do we, do we celebrate them or do we leave them sitting on the windowsill alone, hoping that they'll just find God out without us? Or do we kick them out of our communities, hoping that they'll just come back and find God their own way? It's not something we do often in this church but it's something that many of us know in our stories. My hope this morning is that the story of Eutychus's valuable life will remind us that some have fallen out of church, some have fallen asleep in church, and some have been kicked out of church. It's for some that has ruined their faith. But no matter where they are in their process of faith, when they do, we as a church, we are called to fall with them. And we are called, when we don't fall with them, to go and kneel with them and to resuscitate their faith and to tell them there is a new way, there is new hope, this isn't the end of the story, there is hope. For those who still have faith in Christ, but not in the church, we're called to resuscitate that faith, to be active participants in it. When I lived in Kalamazoo, Michigan for a year, I attended a church called First Congregational. And after my time there, I followed a lot of the ministry and work that they were doing. And one of the things I followed very closely and got to witness firsthand when I went back to visit was a woman named Saheed Nadim, and you can read her article online. She's, she had uh, spent 13 years living in Kalamazoo when, in March of 2018, her visa was expiring. She had spent a long uh, span of time, starting in 2010, working through the judicial system that required her to leave the U.S. because she had overstayed her visa before uh, she overstayed her visa and ended into a fugitive status. They had told her that she needed to go back to Pakistan where she had immigrated here. She had immigrated here because she was a servant and came here at 22 years of age after fleeing her country and had been here then for 40 years and being told that she had to go back because her visa had expired. She had raised two children here who were born here in this country and to leave meant to leave them behind as well one who was raised and one who she was still raising. And so she just went into hiding. Unable to navigate the immigration system, they came to her eventually and told her she had three days to report to the ICE office in Detroit and that she was to go back to Pakistan. She quickly scrambled and went to an immigration officer and that immigration lawyer and that immigration lawyer had a list of churches in the Michigan area 
that were willing to serve as sanctuary locations for folks who were trying to find safe harbor. And on the list of those churches was First Congregational of Kalamazoo. And so First Congregational of Kalamazoo got a call from this lawyer, and they said, we've got a woman, she's, she's got no criminal history, all she's having is a difficult time navigating this immigration system, particularly during this time of heated political tensions around immigrants. She can't navigate the system. She can't seem to get through it. She's at the end of the rope, and they want to come for her. Can she stay in your church until all this passes over? Now, those of you who don't know, you cannot arrest somebody. ICE cannot enter a church and arrest somebody for immigration purposes and take them away. A church is a safe sanctuary. And so this church said, sure, we'll do it. We'll house her. Little did she know that she would be staying in that church for three years, never walking outside. Little did that church know that, her, that agreeing to allow her to be in their building would mean that they were going to renovate their lower basement area to make it into a more usable kitchen and bathroom and shower so that she and her child could have a safe place to live. Little did the pastor know that she would live in his office for a year prior because there was a bathroom right next to the pastor's office and that made the most livable space and the pastor moved into the basement until they finally made the switch because it didn't seem like there was any end in sight and so then they made her an apartment. Finally, during the Biden administration, immigration authorities granted her an order of supervision in February and she was able to leave the church for the first time and I want to show you these pictures of her. In the article, the staff talk about the three years of relationship with her, of how she would come to worship. She was a Muslim woman, but she would come to worship and she would sit and she would pray to Allah on behalf of the people. And one time, they said, would you like us to, to ask an imam to come and visit you and to pray with you? She said, no, I don't need an imam to pray. I'll just pray by myself. But she tells in the article about how she was so afraid to go and be at this church as a sanctuary because she thought they were going to try to convert her. And she thought that they were going to force her to be a Christian in order for her to be there. And she was so scared that they wouldn't let her pray to Allah. And she said that it was very quickly that she began to see that that was not going to be the expectations of that congregation. She was on her spiritual journey and in her process and that they were not going to force their beliefs on her in, in that way in any way. And during her time there, uh, she could easily be found uh, making meals for people, uh, six-course meals for, uh, for Pakistan, uh, six-course Pakistani meal for families in the church. And keep that image up if you would. I want to highlight one more thing. And she, even more than that, um, you see these windows that are right there. That was the pastor's office where she was at for that one year staying, sleeping on a cot. They continued to think that it would just be temporary until they made a more permanent situation. And she said, I'm so bored in here. I've got nothing to do in here. What am I? I'm stuck in this church. And this, the, ch the church often uh, served a lot of folks who were experiencing homelessness. And they would serve a meal once a week. But she said she would see them hanging out in the church's parking lot throughout the week. And so she began to talk with the church, and she said, hey, I'm not doing anything in here. Can I start cooking food and handing it out this window to folks who are in the parking lot who are hungry? And they're like, well, sure, of course you can. So she can't leave the building. Her life is in turmoil. Her future is uncertain. She's raising a child in a sanctuary church, living in a pastor's office, showering out of a basin of water, 
and serving folks who are experiencing homelessness through a window. When I look at that window, I think about the story of Eutychus. Some are pushed out the window. Some fall out the window or out of the church. And others are invited to it. Others are invited into it. Others who feel like they can't trust the church or the narrative that they've been told about the church is just too scary. The walls and the prejudice and the hurt and the pain and the uncertainty can be torn down when a church chooses to say, we're going to be a part of a different narrative. We're going to swim upstream. Instead of leaving the people to be at their death as they fall out of the church, we're going to go down and resuscitate and bring something to new life. My prayer for us, Amago, is that yes, as a church, but as people individually, that we would constantly be on the lookout for the people who've fallen out of the church, for the people who've been pushed out of the church, for the people who've fallen asleep in the church, and shake them awake, resuscitate them to life, invite them into something new, crack open a window, walk down a communion aisle, and just live and be your true self. Because as you do that, I think you do the same work that Paul did, resuscitating people, bringing them back into the fold in the life of the church, showing people that the church is more than just preaching till midnight, but it's actually actions. It's cranking open a window, and it's doing something.